0: Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 21, we have arrived at the place in David's life where he is now a fugitive. And while he may be an, a hero in the eyes of the people, news is going to spread quickly that David is an enemy of the state. And, and the question is, is you know, where can someone like that go to be safe? You know, uh, I was uh, someone who grew up in the, the time period, uh, I was a teenager when you know, they had the live cam on the the uh, the, the white-painted Bronco that was heading for Mexico. And, uh, and no, I'm not talking about John Elway. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, I, I remember thinking to myself, I'm like, what, what were you thinking? Like, how are you thinking you're going to make it, you know? And uh, where, you know, where can you go to be safe when you're a fugitive in your own your own home. And you know, Jonathan left David with a blessing in chapter 20, verse 42, that he would go in peace. He would go in wellness, wholeness, safety. But David does not believe that he will be well or safe. And so he concocts a plan that puts others in danger and puts him in the hands of his worst enemy. And so, chapter 21 of 1 Samuel teaches us what happens when you have a heart ruled by fear. So chapter 21, verse 1. It says, "'Then came David to Nob, to Abimelech, Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech was afraid at the meeting of David, and he said unto him, "'Why are you alone, and no man with you?' And David said unto Ahimelech the priest, "'The king has commanded me a business, and he has said unto me, "'Let no man know anything of the business wherewith I'm, uh, with whereabout I send you, and what I have commanded you, and I have appointed my servants to such and such a place.'" Now, therefore, what is under your hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand, or or what there is present. Here we see that David, he is on the run, and and he's got to secure food at first. He's got to figure out how he's going to survive because he can't go home and get food. He can't go to the market and get food. He He needs to find some supply of food to get him to whatever safe destination he is headed towards. So David is on the run. He doesn't have the ability to stop home, shop for some supplies. All he has is whatever is on him at the time that Jonathan told him, you need to go. And because David can't stay near Saul, he decides to go to someone whose entire purpose in Israel is to serve. He goes to the tabernacle there in Nob, and he speaks to Ahimelech the high priest. Now, the city of Nob is about one mile north of Jerusalem, and it became the headquarters for the priests after the Philistines destroyed Silo earlier in uh, Saul's reign. The tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant were here, uh, but this is still very close, only a mile southeast from Saul's palace. So he is still very much in the area where it's not hard for people to recognize him and tell King Saul where he is if they know David's a fugitive. Now, Ahimelech here, it just calls him the priest, but he is the great-grandson of Eli, and he is the current high priest. And he is not exactly happy to see David. It mentions that he was afraid at the meeting of David. Uh, The word there means he trembled. It was was very rare for a man of David's standing to travel alone. David is a war hero, and he's the king's son-in-law. He normally traveled with servants, and, and if anyone knew he was around, he traveled with onlookers. I mean, hey, that's David. That's David, you know? So it was, it was not something that was normal for David to just pop up in the middle of the day all by himself, unless you're about to be killed. And so, again, it's also not hidden knowledge that Saul has sent soldiers to arrest David In fact, 1 Samuel chapter 19 verse 24 tells us that people were talking about Saul's prophetic utterances when he came himself to arrest David, which means they would have known why he originally went to Naoth to see David. And thus, Ahimelech asks, David, why are you here alone? Perhaps David didn't expect a suspicious response, or perhaps David had planned to deceive Ahimelech all along. Either way, David's decision to lie ends up altering Ahimelech and every other priest's life at Nob forever. In verse 2, it says, David says unto Ahimelech the priest, well, the king has commanded me a business. He has given me a, a special charge, and the word business, it just means something, to do something. In other words, it's, it's top secret stuff, Mr. High Priest, man. You're not in the know. I can't give you even the smallest details. And he said unto me, let no man know anything of the business whereabout I send you and what I have commanded you. And I have appointed my servants to such and such a place. In other words, I'm not alone. I'm not really alone. I have have a group of men that are coming with me to to help me on this mission, but but I've appointed them a place and you don't need to know any more details. Before we get into David's request from Ahimelech, we, we do need to ask the question, why does David lie to the high priest? Why not confide in this man who's supposed to serve the Lord? I mean, this is a guy that you should be able to go to, and there's no indication, I mean, if you have a problem like this, and there's no indication that Ahimelech is not a godly man. In fact, as we'll see later on, Jesus makes positive statements about Ahimelech um, in Matthew chapter 12. So why not confide in this man who's supposed to serve the Lord, who's supposed to be able to give you counsel from God's Word? Why does David lie to him? Well, It's the same reason any of us lie. It's because we believe if someone knows the truth, our lives will be worse off, that things will not be well. It's the same reason that any of us lie, fear, selfishness, and unbelief. In 2017, National Geographic published a study whose goal was to discern why people lie. They determined that 75% of the reasons people lie are to protect themselves from justified harm or, in other words, they did something wrong and they should be in trouble for it, or they lie to gain something that is not their own. Jonathan told David he was going to be safe. But David did not believe he'd be safe unless he took matters into his own hands, unless he took a path that he believed was smarter than the path that God had presented him with. In other words, fear, selfishness, unbelief. The decision to lie is never an idea that originates from the Lord. In Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, that very famous statement about the Lord where it says, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent, that he should change his mind. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or has he spoken, and shall he not make it good? So the decision to lie is never an idea that originates from the Lord. Lying is actually, according to Jesus, something that originated from the enemy. In John 8, verse 44, it has this interesting phrase that Jesus says here. When he's speaking to the Pharisees, he says to them, You are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and did not remain in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar, and here it is, and the father of it, the originator, the progenitor. He is the creator of lying, selfishness, unbelief, lying. That's what he wanted, right? He wanted the throne of God. From the beginning, he was originated from a lie, unbelief. He didn't believe that the role that God had given to him was the very best for him. And you know, lying is something that started right after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, we see in verse 8, and even if we were to go before then, Satan tempts Eve with a lie, you shall not surely die. But in verse 8, it mentions here that after they sinned, after they disobeyed God by eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it says that so the eyes of them both were opened, they knew they were naked and, and It's going to tell us why they sowed fig leaves later, but they sowed fig leaves together made themselves aprons. In verse 8, they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Why did they try to hide and cover up? Genesis 3 verse 9, and the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, where are you? And he said, well, I heard your voice in the garden. In other words, why aren't you out? I'm looking for you. Why why aren't you responding to that? But Adam replies, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. The lie came, the cover-up came because he was afraid. Fear. God hates lying because it is harmful to our relationship with him, and it is harmful to our relationship with others. You know, it's interesting, the Bible calls in that same verse where it says, Jesus says, that Satan is the originator of lies. It also says that he's a murderer in that same verse. And what's interesting is when the Lord speaks about lies in the book of Proverbs, he equates lying to that kind of harm, to doing physical violence to an individual in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 18, the Lord says, a man that bears false witness against his neighbor is a, the King James says a maul, but it means it's like an axe. He says it's like a sword, and it's like a sharp arrow, devices that are intended to kill. Now, what's beautiful is that in contrast to hiding and lying, God promises something to us if we come out into the open. Turn to the book of 1 John with me, because I want to share a few verses with you here. First John, chapter one, we'll start there. In first John, chapter one, verse five, John is desiring that our joy would be full. He says, I'm writing these things to you, your joy be full. He wants us to experience real joy, you know, real meaning in life. And so he says, This then is the message which we have heard from him and declaring to you. This is what Jesus taught us: the one that we saw, the one that we touched, the one that we heard with our ears, the one that we handled, the word of life. This is what he taught us, and we're declaring it to you. And what is that message? That God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. It's a fact about God. God is light, in him is no darkness. There's no deception, there's no hiding, nothing. So verse six, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. We're not living the truth. So if we say that, hey, yeah, me and God are good, but I'm hiding things from him, you know, I'm walking in darkness, I'm, I'm living in sin, I'm not being open before the Lord, he says we are lying, We're not living the truth. We're not doing the truth. But here's the blessing. If we walk in the light, notice it doesn't say if we get everything right. If we walk in the light, not if we get everything right. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, nothing hidden, nothing in darkness. It says we have fellowship one with another, so our relationships with others are strong. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Our relationship with him is good. When we lie, we do damage not just to our relationship with the Lord, but we do damage to the relationships that we have with others around us. And so the Lord says, come into the light with those failures. We go down to verse 8. If we say we have no sin, he is, uh, we, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God promises us if we come out into the open, there's mercy, there's forgiveness, there's cleansing, there's healing, there's change. He can work in our lives. You know, God surely would have preserved David if he told Ahimelech the truth. See, how do you know that, Pastor Will? Well, because David anointed, uh, God anointed David to be the next king, right? It's something a, a friend of mine told me once. And uh, he said, you know, when Jesus told the disciples to get into the boat and to row, and remember he falls asleep, and then they come to him because they're sinking, and he's like, Lord, we're perishing. We're, we're going down. And of course, the Lord you know, rebukes the wind and the waves and gets them to the other side. And he says have you no faith? Pretty harsh. It's a storm, Lord. I mean, it was not there when we got in here. We're trying our best to get out of this thing. We, we thought we were really going down. And, and my friend reminded me, he said, the Lord told him they were going to the other side, not going down, not going under. And so God told David, you're going to be the next king. Has he been anointed king yet? Well, then he can't die yet. and that's how i know but rather than believe that truth david sought to protect himself at the expense of deceiving others in 1 john chapter 4 verse 18 it tells us something else and when we put this deception that david did together with this verse it gives us an understanding of why having a heart ruled by fear can be so dangerous it tells us in verse 18 of 1 John chapter 4, there is no fear in love. In other words, and if you go read the whole chapter, it talks about, you know, behold what manner of love the Father has shown unto us, that we should be called the sons of God. This idea that we are loved by God. So that's, that's what it's talking about here. When it says that, you know, there is no fear in love. When you understand God's love for you, when you are, you are just absolutely convinced of that, there, there's no fear. But perfect love instead, what it does is it drives out, it casts out that fear. And why is that so important, that that is how we live our lives, that our hearts are ruled by God's love, not by fear? He says, because fear has torment. Think about that for a minute. Fear is torturous. And, And if you have ever experienced great fear, you, you don't need me to explain that to you. You know that. I've experienced that. I, I understand what it's like to be terrified. I know the torturous thing that that is. It is overruling. It is something that will grab hold of you and hold you in its clutches, and it demands that you bow, bow down to it, that you give weight to it, and you do whatever it's telling you to do, no matter how crazy it sounds. It grips you. And when I allow fearful thoughts to rule my heart, it, beca- it can become unrestrained in its willfulness and its selfishness, where everything else becomes an literally blanked out of my life. Loved ones become blanked out of my life, the Lord becomes blanked out of my life, and all I see is the absolute terror in front of me. It's torturous. And so we're not supposed to let fear rule our hearts. We're supposed to guard our hearts from such things because what is inside of our hearts affects how we speak and how we act. In uh, the book of Proverbs chapter four, verse 23, we will get back to David eventually. In Proverbs chapter four, verse 23, it says keep your heart with all diligence. In other words, if you're gonna work hard at something, guard your heart, protect your heart with all diligence, it says, because out of it are the issues of life. We're supposed to guard our heart from fear, from these types of things, because what's in our hearts affects how we speak and how we act. It does. It just does. And you know what's interesting? You say, well I don't know about you, but I think when I read something like that, well, so how do I guard my heart? Like, I don't want that to happen. I want the things that issue out to be Pleasing to the Lord, to be healthy things. So how do I guard my heart? Well, two things are given to us in Scripture to guard our hearts. The first thing is God's word. The second thing is God's peace. In in Proverbs chapter four, verses 20 through 22, right before it talks about guarding your heart, it says this. My son, attend unto my words. Incline your ear unto my sayings. Let them not depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life unto those that find them, and health to all their flesh. Isn't that awesome? You know, he says, listen, the things I'm sharing, he says all the way at the beginning of Proverbs, the things I'm sharing with you are the wisdom from the Lord. So listen to what I'm saying. You know, I love the phrase he says there. He says, keep them in the midst of your heart. Keep them right in the center of your heart, because... That's how you'll guard your heart with all diligence. And, And then what comes out will be that which pleases the Lord, that which will be healthy, healthy decisions, healthy thinking. So God's word is one of the things that God gives us in Scripture to guard our hearts. But the second thing that God gives us in Scripture to guard our hearts is God's peace. Look at Philippians 4 with me. This section of Scripture is probably alongside Romans 6, been probably one of the most practically helpful sections of Scripture to me as a Christian. Romans 6 is a, a, a practical guide of how to walk in the Spirit instead of the flesh. And it, is, it has been a part of my prayer life for, for decades now, I guess, since I learned it at school. But this one is formed a little bit more in my adult life. Um, but in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, the writer Paul says, be anxious, careful, the King James says, but it means be anxious for nothing. (laughs) We could just do stop right there. (laughs) Nothing, Lord? Nothing? Nothing. Are you sure you mean nothing? Because I can think of a few good things to be anxious about. Nope, nothing. Nothing. In contrast, but in everything, the things that you could be anxious about, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, don't forget that part, let your request be made known unto God. So instead of being anxious, in contrast, I need to take whatever that thing is that I'm tempted to be anxious about And I'm to bring it by prayer and supplication. So I'm to talk to the Lord about it, prayer, supplication, ask the Lord to help with it. And then alongside that, I need to thank the Lord. I need to have that thankful mindset. And that's how I let my request be made known unto him about this anxious situation. And look at what the result will be. And the peace of God, which... King James says, passes all understanding. It, it, the idea of passes means it surpasses, it's better, it's superior than understanding. I am 46 years old, and it's taken me this long to realize that I don't like not knowing things. I don't like not being in control of a situation, you know, that there are unknowns, that there are variables that I can't influence. And this peace that comes from God is superior to knowing, to understanding, and look at what it says. It shall keep, guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus, the peace of God. So those are the two tools, two tools that God gives to us to guard our hearts, God's word and God's peace. So if you're experiencing fear or selfishness or unbelief, you know, thinking, God, there's no way God, will, if I do it God's way, my marriage will fail. If I do it God's way, my, my, you know, I'll lose my kids. Or if I do it God's way, you know, you know the business will fail. Whatever it is that, that maybe you're struggling with, if you're experiencing fear or selfishness or unbelief, The only solution is to take all that. Even if you've already failed, you've already made bad decisions, wrong decisions, wicked decisions, you have to take all of that. The only solution is to bring it into the light. Open God's Word, expose your heart to the truth, and then take those incorrect thoughts captive and replace them with the truths of God's Word. And then after that, you need to ask the Holy Spirit as you brought this request to God with thanksgiving, you need to ask him to fill you with his Holy Spirit so that you might gain the peace of God, which is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, that peace, which is better than knowing how it's going to work out. And that is the only way that you could stare at a storm around you, at a boat that's filling with water, and Jesus is sleeping and go, but he said we're going over to the other side. Hand me a bucket, boys. Let's just keep shoveling. Right? I mean, that's how you do that. You know, you, you, you do what you know, and, and you, you trust the word of the Lord. With the, with the, even though you look around you and you go, this is foolish. There's no way. The water is filling faster than the buckets can send it out. The storm is not going away. We are too far. You know, as, as my brain is computing, there is no way we get to the shore before we sink. That's why the peace of God is better than knowing how it's going to work out. because Jesus has never failed to get me to the other side, and I have thought I was sinking many times. I have come to the Lord saying, Lord, I perish. (laughs) And if you're a husband or a dad or an employer, sometimes you come and go, Lord, we're perishing, and it's my fault. But the Lord has brought me to the other side every time. And he'll do the same for you. Well, back to David. David's lie must somehow calm Ahimelech's fears because David proceeds with his request for help in verse three of 1 Samuel 21. Now therefore, he says, what is under your hand? In other words, what do you, what do you got here in your care? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand, or if you don't have that, he says, give me whatever's, whatever there is present. Um, in light of this important secret mission and my need for haste, you know, uh, give me all this amount of food. And, and remember, he's operating under the pretense that he's told Ahimelech that he's got a team of servants nearby that need food, not just him. But in reality, David's asking for five loaves of food because he's not sure when he'll be able to safely get more food. Um. Now, this wouldn't normally be a problem as the priests were constantly given food. They were supposed to be given food donations out of the tithes of the people's, you know, their crops, you know, from whatever they, they made. Um, so they, they were supposed to be fed and taken care of that way. And there was a, a re, supposed to be a regular income of food coming into the tabernacle. In fact, when we get to Solomon's Temple, um, we're gonna, and we go through the wonderful measurements and everything like that in all the rooms, you know, we're going to find specific—it's the most interesting part of the Bible— what are you doing? What are you. Um, but it talks about specific areas for where they put this food that's been donated, uh, you know, uh, uh, from the tithes of the people. So this would not be a weird request. he say, hey, do you have anything? He, it would be normal for them to have food uh, at the tabernacle there. Um, but the problem is, it turns out the only bread currently available in the tabernacle is the show Look at verse 4. And the priest answered David and said, there is no common bread, no ordinary bread. In other words, none of the. There's no food that's been just donated as part of a tithe Uh, under my hand, he says. But there is hallowed bread, the bread that's been set apart for special use. And he says, if the young men have kept themselves at least from women. In other words, I can give you that as long as this condition is met. Um, This is interesting. It doesn't tell us here that it's the showbread. But Matthew chapter 12, verse 4, when Jesus references this experience in David's life, he tells us just flat out it was the showbread. The word showbread, it means bread of faces. It was 12 loaves placed on a table in the holy place at the start of the week, and it was to be eaten by the priests in God's presence throughout the week. Um, the purpose of this bread was twofold. One, it was for Israel to look to God as the one who provided for their needs. As the priest would lay out this bread every week, it would be a, something that would be reminded. Like the, you know, th- It would always be a bad day if the priest came out and said, there's no bread for the table, you know, because it meant, oh, God's forsaken us. And of course, God didn't do that. There was always bread there, and it was a, a constant reminder that the Lord is supplying all of our needs. The second purpose, though, was for the priests to enjoy the hospitality of the Lord on behalf of the entire nation. Since all of Israel could not safely approach that close to the Lord, they had to be kept at a distance outside the tabernacle. But the priests were given special garments, and they would go through special rituals that would cause them to be holy to the Lord, and they could enter in. And so on behalf of the entire nation, they would enjoy the hospitality of the Lord. And so he says, well, that bread's available. He says, as long as the young men have kept themselves at least from women, now, women are not generally unclean. That's not the point he's making here. Women are wonderful. But Leviticus 24 verse 9 uh, makes it clear that... Actually, that's a misquote. I do not want to quote Leviticus twenty-four nine. I don't have a quote for this one. That's okay. Anyway, I'm just going to come out and say it. Somewhere in Leviticus, it makes it very clear that sexual intercourse made you ceremonially unclean. Now, people read that and they think, so sex is dirty or sex is bad or sex is evil. No, that's not the point. The whole chapter there, and I'm gonna to try to keep this PG-13, the whole chapter there is about emissions, um, emissions of blood, emissions you know, uh, of, of you know, runny noses, things like this, things that would make you unclean. And so the idea is that in the... Uh, Intimate relationship between husbands and wives, uh, fluid emissions do take place, and so that was what would make you unclean. And so it was not sex itself, but it was that that would make you unclean. And so that's why this the priest says, as long as they haven't been with their wives, basically, is what he's saying, um, and they're not unclean, they're not ritually unclean, that they can do that. If you were ritually unclean, you had to wait till the next day before you would be clean again. Um, so he says, that's okay. Now, Leviticus 24.9 makes it very clear that the priests were to eat this bread, but it doesn't say it was only for them. It doesn't say that if any, like there are things that it says if, like for example, it says that if anyone else took the recipe for the anointing oil and used it for anything else, they would be cut off from their people. That was a big deal. But nowhere does it say that they cannot, that other people could not eat this bread. It just mentions that it's for the priests. That's its main purpose. So Ahimelech offers it to David's men as long as they are ceremonially clean. Now, before we move on, I mentioned that Jesus references his event. Why does Jesus reference this event in David's life? Well, look at Matthew 12 with me real quick. It's kind of an interesting little side thought here before we move on. I think one of my favorite things to do In Bible study, is to see something in the New Testament, reference something in the Old Testament, and figure out why. It's one of my favorite things to do because when you figure it out, it's like that whole passage of the New Testament, just it's like someone turned on the big, huge light and it makes so much more sense. It's why the Old Testament is so important. Certainly, there are lessons in the Old Testament that stand alone. That's not what I'm saying, that the only purpose of the Old Testament is to enlighten the new. That's not my point. But there are so many things in the New Testament that do not make sense unless you understand the Old Testament. It's why we teach the Old Testament. It's why we go through it in addition to all of the wonderful principles that we can learn from it too. But we see here that Jesus, it says at the same time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn, uh, through the grain fields, and his disciples were hungry, and so they began to pluck the ears of the corn and to eat, which they were allowed to do. If you're walking through someone's field, you could eat from their food. So if they had apple trees, you could grab an apple. Now what you couldn't do is take four apples and put them in your bag. But if you were hungry, and it was part of Israel's welfare system, if you were walking through their field, you could grab an apple and you could eat it, okay? And that's just how it worked. But when the Pharisees saw them doing this, they said unto them, behold, your disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day plucking the ears of corn, of grain, and then chewing on it. it the, the ears of the grain, it would it would almost make like a chewing gum type of a thing, and, uh, and, and they would eat it. And so they charge them, you're doing work. It's a Sabbath day. You're not allowed to do that. But Jesus said unto them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those that were with him, and how he entered into… The I love what, what Jesus says here, because he references David's lie without actually blasting David. He just references it. David had nobody with him. He had nobody with him. And I love how he says it here, how he phrases it. He says here, have you not read what David did, singular David did, when he was hungry, singular, and they, they were with him? It's almost like he references, remember when David said he had a bunch of people with him and he wanted a bunch of food? Yeah, nobody. Under, nobody doesn't forget, nobody forgets that event. David lied. But there's a lesson here, he says. How he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them that were with him, but only for the priests. He went and did this, is what he says, and it was okay. Even though David was in the wrong here, what he did was not wrong as far as eating that bread, which is what relates to this situation here. What's the point? I think a lot of people accuse Jesus, at least I thought this when I was a young believer too, that Jesus broke the Sabbath. Jesus never broke the Sabbath. He never violated God's Sabbath rules. However, Jesus did violate the rules which the religious leaders added to God's Word. He did do that. And you know, it's important we understand this. When when God gives us a command in His Word, we must obey it, even if it means taking a more difficult path. To ignore one of God's commands because we're trying to be loving or gracious is wrong because grace is never a license to sin, period. But, and this is what Jesus is getting at here, legalism is equally wrong. When we add rules to God's command, it puts a burden on people that God never intended. And the Lord gets just as upset about that as he does when people use grace as a license to sin, Now, what's sad about what David does here is that instead of telling the truth, David takes advantage of Ahimelech's graciousness. Verse 5. And David answered the priest and said unto him, Of a truth, women have been kept from us about these three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in a manner common, yea, though it were sanctified this day in the vessel." And so the priest gave him hallowed bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread that was taken from before the Lord to put the hot bread in the day when it was taken away. He says here, he says, well, if the men haven't been with women, they haven't been with their wives. And he goes, of a truth, which means, well, that's not the case. They, they haven't been with their wives. I know, they've been with me for the past three days, which David's been alone hiding for the past three days. and the vessels of the young men are holy. I love how David, he, he spins this yarn even further. Not only is he sure that the men with him have not been with any women, but I am certain that the clothes that they're wearing right now are not from days before that when they were with women. These are brand new clothes. Brand new clothes. No emissions on them. And then David says this. And you know, The bread is in a manner common, yea, though it were sanctified this day in the vessel. This sentence is so hard to translate from Hebrew into English, but David is basically saying that, well, because God's anointed, the king, Saul, has sent me on this special mission, the mission is therefore holy because he's God's anointed. And therefore, my men are holy. So, Through David's logic, he basically puts him and his men on equal level with the dedicated bread, thus making the bread common, even though it was set apart for special use. That's what he's saying here, basically. I don't know if you've ever tried to logic your way through a lie to make it more convincing, not just to others, but to yourself. But that's exactly what David's doing here. And you know what's sad? Ahimelech didn't need all that convincing. He just needed to know they hadn't been with their wives He had already offered the bread. But you know, that's the danger of lying, isn't it? To avoid detection, you and I have to insulate ourselves with all these other lies that prop up the initial lie. And thus a lie will always lead to more lies. It must, because that's the only way to maintain the initial lie. And so, it says, David took the bread that was taken from before the Lord, to put hot bread in the day when it was taken away. And so this is how we know that it was the Sabbath day when David came to do this, what Jesus tells us later on. We know it's a Sabbath day because that's the day they changed the bread. And it explains here that they had just put hot bread in, and so it was the leftover bread that the priest hadn't eaten from the previous week that David takes with him. Now, While David certainly sees this as a successful deception, what he doesn't know is that someone was watching the entire conversation. Look at verse 7. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. And his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chiefest of the herdmen that belonged to Saul. So Mr. Doge here It mentions that he was the chiefest of the herdmen that belonged to Saul. Uh, this is significant as the head of Saul's shepherds that he would have access to the king. In other words, he was the guy who reported to the king. He was in charge of the shepherds. He would have access to the king. And so noticing what's going on here, he, and this wouldn't just be something that he could whisper to somebody else and maybe it might get to the king. He could go straight to the king with this information when the king is wondering where David is. Now why is he here? It mentions he was detained um, before the Lord. The phrase they're detained," it means someone who has been committed to the custody of the priests. It doesn't tell us why. It's possible he had contracted leprosy or some other skin disease and he was being inspected by the priest today, like he had done his time, you know, away for his cleansing and now he's coming to be inspected. That's possible. Um, It's also possible that he was a proselyte since he's an Edomite here and Edomites are not allowed to come into the tabernacle. So it's possible, I think, I don't remember what the generations is, Um, but it's possible he's there because he's a proselyte. He's undergoing the rites of circumcision and all the other things to become a Jew Um, We cannot know for sure why he's there, but he's at the tabernacle for an extended period of time uh, to be examined by the priest for some reason. And you know what I, I, I think is so, I think it's so enlightening? All of David's hard work to protect himself was worthless, wasn't it? All the hard work, all the lies, all the lies within lies, they were all worthless because this guy sees David with the priest. And while David may escape immediate danger, he ends up putting others in grave danger. It's interesting. There are a few things that David actually verbalizes that he regrets that he did. This is one of the things that David regrets that he did. He goes, this is my fault. We're gonna fight. You say, why is it? What's his fault? You'll find out if you keep coming on Sunday nights because when we get to chapter 22, something happens to these priests because of David's lie. But because all of this is unknown to David right now, we'll get to Doeg the Edomite later on, but because all this is unknown to David right now, he decides to press further by asking for a weapon. Look at verse 8. And David said unto Ahimelech, and is there not here under… I mean, thanks for the food. That's what the end here means, but I have another request. Is there not here under your hand spear or sword? For I have neither brought my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. David is weaponless because he's been hiding for three days in a, behind a like a rock, I think, is what Jonathan mentioned. He couldn't go home. He couldn't go to any of Saul's armors because he's a fugitive. Where's he gonna get a weapon? And he explains, though, <laughs> the reason I don't have a weapon is because the king's business required haste. Being a, I always say I should have been born in Missouri, the show-me state, because I'm suspicious by nature. It's only Jesus that has allowed me to trust anybody. But being suspicious by nature, this is the point where I would have started to question David's honesty. It's hard to imagine that the king's mission would be so urgent that one of Israel's highest ranking generals would leave with zero weapons. But Ahimelech is fully deceived and he offers David an interesting option. The priest said, well, the sword of Goliath the Philistine whom you slew in the valley of Elah, behold, it's here, wrapped in a cloth right behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it. For there is none other save that here. And David said, Well, there's none other like that. Give it to me. There's so much lost again in translation here, but, but let me explain to you what's going on here. David asked for a sword, and, and the priest goes, You know, funny should ask. Isn't God good? Goliath's sword's here. That's what behold means. Behold. You know, he says here, you know, the priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you slew in the valley of Elah, behold. I I can't imagine you're asking me for this sword. Can you imagine the coincidence? God's so cool. That's basically what the priest is saying here. And David's response is likewise. Yeah, there's none like that. God is faithful. Couldn't ask for a better sword than that. It's not a very good moment for David. I think there's another part of Scripture. It's escaping me now, the exact details. But there's a time when someone asks a question of somebody. I think it's Jacob, and and he says, oh, well, the Lord gave me favor. That's how this happened, when he's just lying. It's a similar moment for David here. Not a very good one. But decisions made when my heart is ruled by fear are never good moments. They are selfish and short-sighted moments. I love what David Goodzik said. He said, David can have the sword of Goliath in his arsenal, but he would have been better equipped if he had the faith that killed Goliath. Alan Redpath, very wise man, he said this, David lost confidence in God and in fulfillment of God's purpose for his life, which had been revealed to him. He lost confidence in all of that. He went to God's house for comfort and help and guidance, but he was detected as being wrong in his soul, the fear that Ahimelech felt. Repath goes on to say, instead of acknowledging the truth to the only one who could help him and confessing that he had been telling a lie, he ran for his life again. And truthfully, how is David going to use this weapon? We've already got measurements on these things. Normal people can't use this thing. It's made for a giant. Well, I can't be sure. But what it appears to be is that a very foolish plan had begun to form in David's mind when Ahimelech told him about Goliath's sword. One that caused him to think that there might be a possibility. He could find asylum in the land of the Philistines. And so in verse 10, it says, And David arose and he fled that day for fear of Saul, and he went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now, remember what did Jonathan tell him when he gave him the bad news? He said, Go in peace. Go in shalom. You're going to be okay. Go in peace. But does David go in peace? No, he goes. He says here, he arose and fled for that day for what? The peace that was in his heart? For fear of Saul. David rejected faith in Jonathan's blessing, and he embraced his fears instead. And where does David go? He goes to Goliath's hometown, Gath. And he gets there. It doesn't tell us here. It tells us in the, the subscript of Psalm 56, which David writes after all chapter 21's done. We'll get to that as we close. But it tells us that the Philistines captured him. Now David's a man of war. I mean, this is also someone who knows how to evade capture. So he got captured somehow, which means either he was trying to run and got caught, or he turned himself in. And it mentions here that he's brought before the king. The scriptures don't tell us why David goes to Gath with Goliath's weapon. But when he revealed his identity, there is no way he would not be searched. And I can't imagine the Philistines would be happy to see Goliath's sword on the person of David. Unless, unless, David was hoping to use it as proof of his genuine defection perhaps David believed he could win their favor by returning the weapon of their former champion. Whatever the motive this was, in David's heart, (laughs) it was a very bad decision. One that David realizes when he appears before the king. Look at verse 11. And the servants of Achish said to him, so David's brought before the king, and they're discussing, what do we do? He he wants to defect. And the servants of Achish said to him, is not this David the king of the land? Isn't that interesting?" It's interesting that the, look at why they say this. Did they not sing one to another of him in dances, saying Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens thousands? Isn't it interesting that the Philistines interpreted the song the same way Saul did? Isn't that interesting? Listen, when, when your approach or my approach to things is more in common with the world than it does with God's word, that's a sign we need to repent. When we're thinking the way the world does, that's a sign we need to Turn it around. Is not this David, the one that did all this? Look at verse 12. And David laid up these words in his heart, and he was sore afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. I am blown away by how many heart references there are in the book of 1 Samuel. What does it mean to lay up something in your heart? Well, The word there means to place, to actually lay down, to set beside. Set beside what? All the other fears that were already ruling David's heart. He sees what they're talking about. He sees how the discussion's going. And David begins to take all these new fears and lay them side by side with all the other ones. David was in this spot because of his fears. And now he sets these new worries right next to all the other fears that have been ruling his heart. Now, is that how we're supposed to handle fearful thoughts? No. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. It instructs us, commands us, it tells us the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. So what are we to do? What are, how, how do we wage war spiritually? We cast down imaginations. Imaginations, what's an imagination? It's our thoughts, thoughts that originate from us. Cast down imaginations, first thing. And we're also to cast down every high thing. The word that means every proud thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Everything that I've learned that I know about God to be true, when a proud thought arises in my mind, it rises in my heart that says, no, that's not true. This is actually what's going on. What God says isn't true. What I feel and what I think is true. We're to take any just thoughts that pop in our heads, any proud thoughts that are rising up in our hearts against what we know to be true about God, and we're to bring all of those into captivity to the obedience of Christ. We're to put them in jail. They're not allowed to bounce around our head. That's how fear begins to rule our hearts. When we don't guard our hearts through the word of God, through the peace of God, and we allow thoughts to bounce around in our head, proud thoughts that go against what God's word said, or imaginations, thoughts about what might happen that we don't that are unknowns. When we allow them to bounce around our heads, they begin to take a ruling place in our hearts. And we're not supposed to allow that. We're supposed to take them captive. David is a mess right now. He's laying down thought after thought after thought, that imagination and proud thoughts that exalt themselves against what he knows about the Lord, what God has promised him already. And so because David didn't take those thoughts captive, but he let those fearful thoughts strengthen their rule in his heart, David comes up with another awful deception, verse 13, and we'll read these verses and then we're gonna close with Psalm 56. It says, when David responded in fear it says he changed his behavior before them and he feigned himself mad in their hands the, the word there to feign oneself mad it means to think and act in an irrational manner to act like a fool what was he doing it says he scrabbled on the doors of the gate so he, he starts with his finger, starts like he's trying to carve things into the gate Taking the hands that God gave him for war, God gave him for worship, and very likely causing cuts and, and, and all sorts of other things to occur as he's trying to carve things into the into the wood of the gate. And he also let spittle fall down upon his beard. No man in the right mind. I like my beard. I'm not like a beard fanatic, though. And if you are, that's okay. I know some of you take care of your beard very well. That's fine. But no one, no one knew how to take beard care to the level that those in the Middle East do. It's an incredible dishonor to have things like food in your beard, to, to not care for your beard, to have someone else cut your beard for you. And so for David to allow spittle, saliva, drool, to be in his beard is something that most men in the Middle East, I would dare say, almost all men would rather die than have that happen. And so this causes Achish, verse 14, to say to his servants, lo, <laughs> See, this man is crazy. He's nuts. No, no man in his right mind would allow that to happen to his beard. Why then have you brought him to me? Have I need of madmen that you've brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? He's not defecting here. Get him out of here. And so David, verse 1, chapter 22, just to give you context, therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave Adullam. And then we'll pick that up next week there. What's the point? Psalm 56. What happens after David leaves Gath and in between the time that he gets to the cave of Adullam? Psalm 56. This is David's response to doing things his own way, to letting his heart be ruled by fear. And if you've been letting your heart be ruled by fear, I would really strongly encourage you to read Psalm 56, pray the things that are here, because this is the way out. This is the fresh start for your heart, is right here in Psalm 56. It's what David should have done at the start. He says, "Be merciful unto me, O God." Why would David lie? It's unfair, God. It's wrong. This should, I should not be in this place. I, this is wronged for me to be treated this way. David's not wrong. But when we're wronged, we're supposed to appeal to the Lord's mercy, right? She so says, this is where he should have started. Be merciful unto me, not take it into his own hands. Be merciful unto me, O God, for man would swallow me up. He fighting daily oppresses me. My enemies would daily swallow me up. For there be many that fight against me, O thou most high. But the reason now he is saying, God, be merciful unto me. Look at verse three. What time I am afraid, I will trust in you. This is where David started to find healing for his heart. He didn't ignore the fact that he was terrified. But what he said with it was, Lord, I will, which means I'm making a choice now to do something different than let my heart be ruled by fear. I'm going to trust in you. And how does he do that? In God, I will praise his word. In God, I will put my trust. And I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. My encouragement to you is read the rest of the psalm because there's tons of good stuff in there. But start trusting in God's word. Stop fearing what flesh can do to you. Hope in his mercy instead of fairness or anything else. Rest in the peace of God. It's better than understanding. And keep sailing because Jesus is going to get to the other side. Amen? Let's all stand. Well, Lord, we sang it. You are good. You are good. And your love never fails towards us. Your mercy endures forever. Your chesed, your loyal love, it endures forever. Thank you, Lord, for these lessons from the heart. Because I know, Lord, David's not the only person who's ever had his heart overwhelmed. He's not the only person to lay down these thoughts that were supposed to take captive and to let his heart become ruled by fear. Many of us have probably done it, Lord, and and maybe there may be some tonight who are are going through it. Lord, as your, your sons and your daughters tonight, just cry out for mercy. Would you begin to heal their heart as they commit themselves, Lord, to trusting in your word and to looking to your peace to be better than understanding? Lord, would you show yourself strong on their behalf? Would you hear their cry? And Lord, would you settle all of our hearts that we might be men and women whose hearts are ruled by you and by your love and not fear. In Jesus' name, amen.